1: Thrusting space science
2: into the audio dimension, this is Naked Astronomy.
3: Hello, welcome to Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford. Coming up this month, the hurricanes that can grow to be twice as big as the Earth. We find out how Venus has come to be a hot, dry planet while ours has remained a green and pleasant world. And why doesn't Jupiter's gravitational pull disrupt the Earth's orbit? Plus, as always, we've got more answers to your space science questions. If you've got something you'd like us to tackle, email astronomy at thenakedscientist.com.
2: Supported by the STFC, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy.
3: The solar system's outermost planets are huge worlds which dwarf the Earth, ranging from Uranus, which has 14 times the mass of the Earth, to Jupiter, the solar system's largest planet, which has over 300 times the Earth's mass. Unlike the inner rocky planets, These are huge balls of gas, without solid surfaces, and within their vast atmospheres are the largest and most violent weather systems found on any of the solar system's planets. The best known of these, Jupiter's Great Red Spot, is a hurricane which is twice as large as the Earth, and which has been blowing for well over a century. Earlier this month, I caught up with amateur astronomer Dr John Rogers who's director of the British Astronomical Association's Jupiter section, and collects observations of Jupiter made by amateur astronomers all around the world. I asked him what kind of telescope was needed to see these weather
2: systems. Well, a lot of amateur telescopes can show you plenty of detail on Jupiter. If you've got one of 6 inches aperture, 15 centimetres, that will show you the major features, the belts and zones and the biggest spots and so on. Above that, the larger aperture, the better. And Many people do good images and good visual observations with a 10-inch. Quite a lot of people nowadays have got 12 inches, which can do superb images. So here you've
3: got some amateur observations of Jupiter. Can you just talk me through what features you can see with an
2: amateur telescope? Well the most obvious thing that you see is belts and zones, dark belts and bright zones and everything that you see is actually the top of a deep atmosphere so you're seeing clouds, quite thick clouds and clouds of different colours so the belts and zones are different types of clouds and you also see spots which are basically big weather systems and they evolve, they change, they have different colours and they evolve in a very patterned way so there's always something interesting to see going on on the planet. So looking at Jupiter here, we've got this
3: series of bright and dark lines sort of running parallel to its equator. I guess, is
2: that the great red spot there, that large circulation? Yes, the, the great red spot is, is a big oval reddish structure, which is a big anticyclone in the atmosphere. Uh, and you can see that with a, 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 even a small telescope. Sometimes it's quite obviously red, as it was in 2010. Sometimes it's much paler, as it was in 2011. Changes in that are one of the interesting things about the planet. But it's only the largest of many spots, many circulations and weather systems on the planet. You can see a, a lot of dark features close to the equator, along the edge of one belt. And those are a different kind of weather system that can usually be seen by amateurs. And, and in fact, it's very interesting as a meteorological system as well. It's one into one of those that the Galileo probe went. So we know quite a lot about the weather in those systems.
3: So what's creating this banded structure of bright and
2: dark patches? It's basically the planet's rapid rotation. So all the turbulent motions in an atmosphere are twisted by Coriolis forces, by the forces of the rotation of the planet, so they blow east and west. And that gives you a very patterned atmosphere. So there are strong jet streams blowing eastward and westward at fixed latitudes, and all the other spots develop in between those jet streams. So you have cyclonic regions and anticyclonic regions, and those develop into the large weather systems that we can actually see with amateur telescopes.
3: And looking at these observations, I can see lots of these swirling circulations. We've got some dark
2: ones, we've got some light ones. Why are some of them dark and some of them light? The, the light ones are the ones that have thicker clouds. Those tend to be the anticyclonic ones where the clouds build up stably and you get very thick cloud layers. Some of them also become red, which is why the great red spot is sometimes red. The darker areas are often the cyclonic ones where the clouds are thinner and often more turbulent as well. And it's within those you get some of the most vigorous outbreaks. So sometimes you get a bright white plume erupting in the middle of a dark belt, which indicates that there's something like a giant thunderstorm taking place there. And again, you can follow those with amateur telescopes.
3: Now, you're obviously an amateur observer who's dedicated your life, really, to observing Jupiter. You run the Jupiter section of the British Astronomical Association. How did you get into observing Jupiter?
2: Uh, Well, I suppose I was observing many planets when I was young, but Jupiter is the biggest one. It has the biggest disk, has the most detail on it, and so there's always something interesting going on on Jupiter. And you can see things evolving over weeks, so sometimes a disturbance will break out that you can follow over a few weeks. But also, patterns unfold over decades or even centuries. So sometimes you can see a disturbance, and you can recognise it as something that was last seen many decades earlier. So it has interest in all of these timescales.
3: So these circulations are appearing, they're disappearing, there's continuous
2: change that you can monitor on Jupiter's surface? There is, and actually the ones we're currently looking at show a fairly typical view of the atmosphere, but what you can see in some of them is that the equatorial zone, which is normally bright white, is quite orange, and that was a change that happened quite transiently in 2012 as part of actually of, of a disturbance affecting a large part of the planet. Uh, In fact, in that year, there was a major disturbance, which illustrates some of the reasons why it's so interesting to observe Jupiter over many years. One of the major belts in the planet suddenly became quite narrow and faint and then very rapidly erupted into a very dark, turbulent, reddish disturbance that was present all around the planet. And this was quite novel to us in the modern era. It had last been seen in 1926. So we can now say that the planet is reverted to a state that it was in nearly a century ago and is doing the same kinds of disturbances that hadn't been seen in the meantime. But also it's an illustration of why amateur observations, even not the highest resolution ones, can be very valuable, because this disturbance began just before solar conjunction, that is, just before the planet disappeared behind the sun in the evening sky. And it was only caught at its onset because a few observers were following the planet into the twilight. Even when they couldn't get very good quality images, they were able to record that a major disturbance had started. And then they were able to get back again as soon as the planet reappeared in the morning sky a few months later and look out for these disturbances and how they had developed at a time when observers otherwise might not have bothered because the planet was so difficult to observe. We'll be returning to
3: John a little later to find out how amateurs manage to take such high-resolution images. But I'd like to turn now to Lee Fletcher from the Atmospheric, Oceanic and Planetary Physics Group at the University of Oxford. He works on theoretical models of how the atmospheres of these large planets behave, and Lee's group works with observations made by amateurs like John Rogers'. I started by asking him why the giant planets were such fascinating places to study.
4: All four giant planets in our solar systems can be thought of as rather simple examples of what a planet looks like if you don't have the complicating influence of continents, mountain ranges and oceans like we do here on the terrestrial planets. What you're looking at when you look through a telescope at the giants is pure weather systems, pure, unadulterated fluid dynamic systems. In fact, the natural state for any spinning planet to take on would be a banded structure, something like Jupiter and Saturn, with those powerful eastwards and westward winds pushing material east and west around the planet. So by looking at the giants, certainly from a meteorology point of view, what we're trying to do is understand the physics and the chemistry of the weather systems on the giants so that we can then apply those same principles, those same ideas, to weather systems on our more complicated home planet.
3: So even though these are really very different from the Earth, they're tens of times more massive, what you're saying is that the physical processes going on in their atmospheres are actually very similar to what's happening on the rocky planets?
4: Oh, absolutely. And in fact, a lot of the meteorology that we see on the giants is being driven by the deposition of sunlight. So on Earth you have... The sun heating up the ground, the ground then leads to convection within our own atmosphere and those are the weather systems that you see affecting us every day here on Earth. Now, on the giant planets, the sunlight is still being absorbed by the clouds, by the gaseous species which are present in that atmosphere and that energy is then able to drive the powerful atmospheric circulation that we're looking at.
3: Now, we've got these absolutely fantastic images that we see returned by spacecraft like Galileo of Jupiter and Cassini of Saturn. Sure. What can amateurs really contribute to our scientific understanding of those planets?
4: Okay. well, what you've got to remember is that when you're looking through a telescope at visible wavelengths, is that you're seeing light being reflected back from the cloud tops on any of these giant planets. Now, that sometimes gives us a false impression because you're thinking about things in just two dimensions. You're looking at light reflected from the very top of those clouds. But, of course, these atmospheres are actually very complicated three-dimensional structures. Now, what the amateurs can do that we professionals sadly cannot, and even with a spacecraft in orbit around some of these planets, we're unable to do this, is look at the giant planet on a night-by-night basis. So forming that continuous long-term data set to look at how the weather systems and how the features are evolving with time is something that uniquely amateurs can provide to the scientific community. And you've got these incredible guys out there who can devote time to the observations of the giant planets on a nightly basis to give us a data set that scientists can only dream about. So this close collaboration that we now have between the professionals who maybe get time on a telescope once every few months if not once every few years and the amateurs who are observing these complicated evolving systems on a nightly basis is stronger than ever and it's really helping and we're now getting a lot of scientific publications out of that collaboration.
3: When we look at for example the visible opaque surface of Jupiter what physical structure are we looking at?
4: So when you're seeing Jupiter through a telescope what you're really looking at is light being reflected back from the cloud tops. And our best understanding is that those clouds are made not of water ice, like you would have here on Earth, but of crystals of ammonia, ammonia that has frozen out to form those different clouds on the visible surface of Jupiter. Now, you're quite right, that's not a rocky surface. And in fact, we don't really know what happens at very great depths within these giant planets. We know that the pressures are so immense and the temperatures so immense that the hydrogen and helium, which makes up the bulk of these giant planets, gets compressed into a very alien, exotic form. In fact, we have this idea of something called metallic hydrogen, where the simplest element in the universe is actually separated out into its constituents, protons and electrons, and becomes electrically conducting. Now, we don't know a lot about this metallic hydrogen state of matter, but what we can tell you for certain is that there is no rocky surface, so to speak, to stand on in those giant planets. Now, those ammonia cloud tops, unfortunately, act as a limit to what we can understand about the giants. We use a process called remote sensing, whether it be from a ground-based telescope or whether it be from a spacecraft in orbit. And that means looking at the giant planets across multiple different wavelengths of light. Now, the different wavelengths probe down to different altitudes within the planet's atmosphere but those clouds act as a limitation we very rarely can get beneath those cloud tops and that means that we struggle to see what's going on deep down below which is annoying (laughs) because a lot of the interesting dynamics a lot of the convective activity which is shaping the appearance of those giant planets is being driven not from above but from below by powerful convection deep below the cloud tops
3: I guess we can feel the gravitational influence of Jupiter and we know it's got a very strong magnetic field. So I guess that is telling us something about what's beneath that opaque surface.
4: Oh, absolutely. In fact, one of the goals of the next spacecraft mission that's going to Jupiter, the Juno spacecraft, which is on its way at the moment and due to arrive in 2016, is to very precisely map the gravitational and magnetic field of Jupiter itself. Now, that is a way of peeling back the skin of the onion and actually peering below the clouds to try and figure out what the structure of the planet is at great depth. But it's still an enormous challenge. And what amateur observers are seeing when they look through a telescope is the very skin of the apple. They're seeing the top-level manifestation of things that are going on much deeper down. We have to think of these as big three-dimensional systems. I'll give you just one example of one of the things that we're trying to get at with the Juno spacecraft. A lot of the meteorology that we see, we believe is being driven by very powerful rising convective columns, just like you would see a cumulus cloud here on Earth on a stormy day. Now that rising column is actually dredging material from deep down within the atmosphere and pulling it up to above the cloud tops at levels that we can see. Now, that material is then redistributed by the powerful winds that are at play within Jupiter and Saturn's atmosphere, and they blow the material around the planet over different timescales. It's almost like injecting a tracer into Jupiter's atmosphere and seeing how it evolves then over the course of time. The reason we might want to do that is because it's telling us about the large-scale circulation. It's telling us about the winds. It's telling us about the climate of this giant planet. Now those rising columns are something we struggle to get to, but something like Juno will be able to peel back those different levels of the onion and see down to where the columns are initiated to understand how they evolve over the course of time.
3: We'll be hearing more from Lee about the Juno mission in just a moment, but I was curious to hear how amateur astronomers can produce these high-resolution images of the upper atmospheres of gas giants like Jupiter. A few years ago, I bought a small telescope, and occasionally I've tried putting a camera on the back of it. But I guess, like many cattle observers, I've never managed to see anything more in its most basic sequence of bright and dark bands. I asked John Rogers what makes the difference between cattle observers like me and the observers who he worked with.
2: Well, in terms of taking images, there are various aspects. Part of it is to have very good equipment and very good sight and very good stable seeing Even though modern imaging can pick out good images from quite mediocre seeing, those who get the best sights, the best conditions really do get the best images.
3: So by seeing there you're talking about the blurring effect of
2: turbulence in the Earth's atmosphere? Yes, that's right. If you look through a telescope visually you see this all the time and in England often it's uh, pretty severe um, because of all, all our turbulent weather here. So some people go to nice tropical islands where not only is the sky clearer but also the atmosphere is more stable and get better images from there. Am I right in thinking there are actually
3: computer systems that can actually pick out the sharp images from a stream of blurry images?
2: That's right. That's how almost all the best amateur imaging is done nowadays. The great discovery was that webcam images could be taken with a really sensitive webcam and then could be processed using software that was developed by amateurs. The Registax software was the first So basically it selects all the sharp images and can throw away all the blurry images taken with exposures of a fraction of a second over a minute or two. And so hundreds of good images are stacked and aligned by the software and the images taken when the atmosphere was slightly more blurry can be thrown away. But then there's also quite a bit of art in using these programmes to assemble the best images and that's where some of the best observers have the edge, I think, because there's further processing done to enhance the small-scale detail, suppress some of the larger blurry detail so as to bring out the small-scale contrast on the planet. And some observers have a really good knack for doing that in a way that reveals the real details of the planet without producing too many artefacts. And I
3: guess also a lot of dedication in getting your telescope focused and your camera set up absolutely
2: perfectly to get those really good images. That's a very important aspect of it as well. In fact, focusing is one of the big issues when you're using webcam equipment rather than looking visually through the telescope.
3: Now, so far we've talked exclusively about Jupiter. Does Saturn, for example, have the same banded structure of zones and
2: belts? It has a similar structure. On Jupiter, the belts in the zones are quite strictly delimited by the jet streams in the atmosphere. On Saturn, there are also jet streams. In fact, they're even faster than Jupiter's, but they're not so closely spaced together and not so regularly spaced. So on Saturn, you have visibly dark belts, but they're not so tightly restricted by the jet streams. So on Saturn, the, the contrast is rather lower, and the belts are rather more variable in their position. So the same essential phenomenon, but some interesting differences there. And I guess
3: the obvious visual difference that the belts aren't this deep red colour, so they're not so visibly obvious.
2: Well, partly the difference is because Saturn's atmosphere is deeper. It's not as compressed by Jupiter's strong gravity. Because Jupiter has strong gravity, its atmosphere is quite compressed. Saturn has a somewhat weaker gravity, so its atmosphere is spread out over a higher vertical extent. And there's more haze in the atmosphere, so the interesting weather is somewhat obscured by overlying haze on Saturn. And what about the outer two gas
3: giants, Uranus and Neptune? Most of the images of those are seen have come from the Voyager 2 spacecraft.
2: Have amateurs ever managed to see surface structure on those? Yes, it's very difficult. There have also been quite a lot of images from the Hubble Space Telescope in recent years, which can resolve spots and bands on Uranus and Neptune, but mainly they do so in the infrared. So amateur observations of those are really very difficult because obviously the planets are very small, they're very dim within the field of the telescope, and there's very little structure in visible wavelengths. So amateurs can just about record some detail in the infrared, but so far, I've not been able to track spots the way that the Hubble Space Telescope can do.
3: Now, for the last 10 years or so, there haven't been the spacecraft in orbit around Jupiter since the Galileo spacecraft terminated its operations about 10 years ago. Are amateurs going to face more competition when the Juno spacecraft arrives, I think, next year, isn't it? Uh,
2: it's getting there in 2016. It's actually not going to be competition. There's hopefully going to be a lot of cooperation between us amateurs and the space scientists over the Juno mission because the mission is mainly intended to probe the planet's interior and probe its magnetic field, including the aurorae, around the poles. So the orbit is arranged so that most of the imaging will be done over the poles, and it will only be taking a few snapshots during a very rapid low pass over the regions of the planet that we can see well. So, in fact, the people running the mission are quite keen to have amateur input into covering what is going on on the planet between Juno's orbital passes, and deciding where would be a good place to point the cameras during the few opportunities they have during these orbits. And meanwhile, most of its main science will be concentrating on the polar regions, which amateurs can't see very much of.
3: So Juno is going to be learning about what's beneath the surface, while amateurs can say what's actually happening visibly on the surface.
2: Yes, indeed. I mean, Juno's got some very interesting infrared instruments to probe what is deep down in the atmosphere, And, in fact, the principal point of the mission is to map the planet's gravitational field very precisely. And that may also tell us about what the planet consists of deep down inside. So, meanwhile, we will be looking at the disturbances that are happening on the surface. But there may be the opportunity for some tie-in between the space scientists and amateur observations during that mission.
3: My thanks to Dr John Rogers, Director of the British Astronomical Association's Jupiter section. So it seems there's plenty of opportunity for amateur astronomers and space scientists to work together. But I still wanted to know more about why the four gas giants all have such different appearances, despite the fact that they have quite similar compositions. John already mentioned that this has a lot to do with the amount of haze in the atmospheres of each of them. But where did this haze come from? I put the question to Lee Fletcher.
4: Sure. It's a very difficult problem to try and unravel. And if you look at all four of the giant planets and compare them, you see that each one is slightly different. Now, they all started, we believe, from similar source material. So the vast majority of all of these giant planets is hydrogen and helium that was sucked in from the solar nebula back at the time when the planets were first forming. The rest of the material there are molecules and elements that were mixed in later on over the course of time. And so they're there in very tiny trace quantities. We've already talked about ammonia, and it's ammonia that is the key volatile in these atmospheres that condenses out to form the clouds. But we also believe there's a lot of water vapor there, and that water vapor should be condensed in very deep water clouds far below the levels that we can see. And there's a lot of methane gas there as well. So these simple molecules, things like methane and water and ammonia, can then be split apart by ultraviolet radiation from the sun. And it's that chemistry, those chemical reactions, which leads to the very different compositions and the very different appearances that we see on all four giants. Now methane is a really crucial constituent in that when you split apart methane, you form these chains of extremely long hydrocarbon molecules. And those hydrocarbons can form haze particles or smog particles within the atmospheres of these giants. Of course, the amount of chemistry you have, you might have more haze particles. The more haze you have, the slightly different colours you'll have from planet to planet. So something like Jupiter, where you see the cloud tops very clearly, has very little overlying haze layers, meaning that we can see the deep red and the white colours of the clouds. Contrast that with something like Saturn, where the appearance is often much more bland than Jupiter. On Saturn, there's a lot more haze material, and that haze just prevents us from seeing quite as deep into the planet's atmosphere.
3: You've alluded there to the fact that the solar system has four gas giants, and obviously we're very used to seeing lots of images of Jupiter and Saturn, but most of the images that I've seen of Uranus and Neptune, the two outermost gas giants, have come from Voyager 2 in the 1980s. Are we now able to take images of those from the ground?
4: So the last time that any spacecraft visited Uranus and Neptune, what we know as the ice giants in our solar system, was back in the late 1980s, a quarter of a century ago now, which I think is quite a sad thing. Now, thankfully, we have both space-based observatories, things like the Hubble Space Telescope, and also very large ground-based observatories, like the Very Large Telescope in Chile, the Gemini and Keck telescopes out in Hawaii. And these are capable of resolving cloud features and dynamic meteorology on the atmospheres of the ice giants. It's only been in recent years that we've been able to start doing this and to actually track cloud features on Uranus and Neptune in the same way as amateurs are now doing for Jupiter and Saturn. And what we're seeing is that Uranus and Neptune have similar banded structures, so they have the belts and zones which characterize something like Jupiter, and they also exhibit every now and then White convective plumes, so columns of rising material that dredge stuff from deeper down in the atmospheres, just like we see on Jupiter and Saturn. So again, it's the same fluid dynamic processes, the same physics, the same chemistry, which is shaping the appearance of the ice giants as is shaping the gas giants. The reason for their very different appearance, so Uranus and Neptune appear blue and Jupiter and Saturn appear a multitude of colours, is because the amount of material is there in different ratios. For example, on Uranus and Neptune, a lot of what we see in the upper atmosphere is methane gas. Methane gas absorbs very strongly in red light, leaving the rest to be reflected back as blue, which is why you see the blue appearance of those two planets.
3: Now, I guess one of the obvious characteristics of the Earth's atmosphere is that its weather changes with the seasons. Mm -hmm. Do the gas giants also have changing weather with the seasons?
4: They certainly do. Seasonal evolution is now a, is now a big field in the gas giant community. It's taken a while for us to get there, and the simple reason for that is that uh, Saturn takes 30 Earth years to go around the Sun. Something like Neptune takes 165 years to go around the Sun. So seasons are much, much longer than we used to here on planet Earth. And that means you need long-term data sets to start to track how things are changing with time. Now, the best-characterized planet in terms of seasonal evolution is now Saturn and that's because we've had the Cassini spacecraft there in orbit since middle of 2004 so operating almost for a decade now to give us a third of a Saturnian year. Now when we first arrived at Saturn it was summertime in Saturn's southern hemisphere so the sun was more illuminating in the south than it was in the north and we noticed that the northern hemisphere that was just coming out of wintertime conditions appeared blue compared to the normal yellow and ochre appearance that you would expect for Saturn. Now, over the course of the mission, we've now passed through what we call the spring equinox, and we're on our way to summertime conditions in the northern hemisphere, so almost half a Saturnian year later. And as those seasons have marched on, that blue coloration in the northern winter has been slowly replaced by the typical yellow colors, and we're seeing before our very eyes Saturn's atmosphere change and evolve depending on how much Sun is reaching different latitudes over time.
3: And I guess you've hinted that Juno is what's going to bring us that kind of coverage for Jupiter. What can we expect in the coming years?
4: Now, Juno is going to be particularly exciting because for Saturn we've been able to look down at the poles of the giant planet using Cassini, and there's been some very interesting discoveries at very high latitudes, such as hexagonal waves and very compact hurricanes situated right at the poles of this planet. Now, on Jupiter, we've never seen the poles directly. The only mission that got a fleeting glimpse was Pioneer back in the 70s. So Juno will be in a polar orbit and able to look down on Jupiter's poles for the first time. So who knows what we might discover there.
3: That was Lee Fletcher from the Atmospheric, Oceanic and Planetary Physics Group at the University of Oxford. And if all of this talk of the gas giants has got you keen to go out and spot them for yourself in the night sky, then Saturn is quite easy to spot just at the moment in the evening sky, not far from the star's spiker. Jupiter, on the other hand, isn't visible just at the moment because it passed behind the Sun within the last week on the 19th of June. But as we get towards the end of 2013, it'll be high in the sky once again in the northern constellation of Gemini. you're listening to Naked Astronomy with me, Dominic Ford. Still to come, we'll be putting your astronomy questions to the experts. If you've got something you'd like us to tackle next month, email astronomy at thenakedscientist.com. But first, it's time to take a look at what's been making the news this month. And the question of why Venus is a hot and dry planet, while the Earth is a green and pleasant world, is the topic of a paper in Nature this month. A new model suggests that this difference could have set in very early, even before the surfaces of the two planets had cooled to the point of solidifying. The paper argues that at this early time, water vapour clouds in their atmospheres would have limited the amount of heat that each of them could radiate to space. According to the model, the Earth was far enough away from the Sun that it could radiate away all the warmth that it received. But Venus, on the other hand, even though it's only a little bit closer to the Sun, receives just slightly too much heat to radiate away, and so it stayed molten for a very long time after it formed, and it was during that period that it dried out. Tamla Musil at the Cabernet Laboratory in Cambridge told me that this paper had especially caught her interest this month.
0: Yep, that's right. So in a recent letter to Nature, Keiko Homano and his team from the University of Tokyo looking at the evolution of rocky planets, so planets like Venus and Earth, and why these two planets are actually so different. I guess
3: in some ways they're actually quite similar, aren't they? They're next to each other in the solar system and they're quite similar sizes.
0: Yeah, exactly. So Venus has been a source of fascination for us for a long time because it's so similar in terms of size and mass to Earth. So it's almost like a twin planet. And also the fact that it's completely covered with a really dense cloud cover means that we don't know what's beneath it. So before we could get probes there, we had all of these exotic ideas about life there. And, and, you know, maybe this was a heavenly place to live. Turns out, since we've actually sent probes onto the surface, it's pretty hellish, um, hottest surface temperatures on the rocky planets. And we don't see any water there, and we think this is an essential criteria for life. So the big question is, why don't we see water on this planet?
3: So obviously part of the reason why Venus is so hot is because it's that bit closer to the sun. But it is really quite incredibly hot. How has Venus become this almighty furnace?
0: Yeah, so it's the hottest surface temperature in the solar system and that's because it's the most extreme example of greenhouse heating that we know of. Why is this? Venus's atmosphere is 96% carbon dioxide, but more importantly it's 100 times higher pressure on the surface of Venus than compared to Earth. and We have all heard that this is a very strong greenhouse gas and it likes to trap in a lot of infrared heat. The reason that Earth doesn't have as much carbon dioxide is because it was able to form a water ocean and this absorbs CO2 quite well. Venus is a very dry surface and we haven't been able to detect any water either in its atmosphere or on the surface. So the fact that it hasn't had the absorber of carbon dioxide keeps it very, very hot and very strong greenhouse effect going on.
3: I mean, given it's so hot on Venus, would you expect to see water there?
0: No, you're right. So at that temperature, you would expect to see a lot of steam in your atmosphere. But we don't even see that. We see no water molecules in the atmosphere. And the question is why? Basically, if Earth and Venus have evolved from the same sort of primordial gas and dust that was around the Sun when the solar system was forming, Venus should have roughly similar water content to Earth. How did Earth keep its oceans? So this paper by Hamano talks about a crucial radius from the sun. And if you're inside this radius, then you remain hot for a very, very long time, and you cool extremely slowly. And in that process, all of your water is evaporated to begin with, and then very slowly stripped away by a strong solar wind, and you lose your water molecules over time. And because Earth was further away, it didn't lose its water before it could cool properly and form liquid oceans. So you start out with a molten planet. As that slowly cools, it starts to degas and it releases a lot of steam to the atmosphere. And this creates a very thick cloud cover with a lot of CO2 and water molecules that like to trap radiation from the sun. So we've got very strong greenhouse gas keeping the heat in. And this limits how much radiation can escape from the planet, how much it can cool by. If we also have strong heating from the sun, because it's pretty close to the sun, then you have heat coming in and a limited heat leaving because you've got this cloud cover keeping it in. And basically that keeps it from cooling as fast as Earth might have done.
3: So on the Earth we think of the greenhouse effect in the context of carbon dioxide. Is it just carbon dioxide on Venus which is causing the greenhouse effect or are there other gases doing this as well?
0: Well, It definitely would have been the water molecules as well before they were stripped away. Essentially you can think of this you know, on a cloudy day Quite often the temperatures tend to be warmer and this is because it's trapping the infrared heat. It's opaque to infrared wavelengths so we have a higher temperature. This was happening on Venus as well.
3: So Venus was very hot because it had all of this water vapour in its atmosphere acting as a greenhouse gas. But I guess the Earth was also molten back when it first formed and surely its water would also have been in the form of steam. So why did Venus remain hot for so much longer?
0: This comes back to this critical distance from the sun. The Earth, of course, would have had a very thick steam atmosphere as well. But because it was further away, it didn't have as much heat from the sun, keeping it hot, essentially. And it was able to cool much quicker. And as soon as it cooled and was able to form a solid surface, not a molten one, then we expect that the oceans would have formed very quickly afterwards. And as soon as you have water in a liquid form, then it's no longer subjected to strong solar winds and stripping, so it was able to retain its water just because it cooled that much faster. Venus remained hot. It was closer to the sun, very thick atmosphere, and over that time, about 100 million years, they think, it would have taken to form a solid surface. Over that time, it just slowly lost its water molecules.
3: And how was it looting its water molecules?
0: So, interestingly, we don't see a very strong magnetic field around Venus. The Earth has an internally generated one, And this shields much of the Earth from radiation from the Sun, solar winds from the Sun. The fact that Venus doesn't have this means that it's interacting directly with charged particles in the solar wind. And this can strip off hydrogen, essentially very, very light molecules like hydrogen and helium, and take it away, just push it out, basically. And so it's no longer part of Venus's atmosphere.
3: So hydrogen atoms are just very light, they float to the top of the atmosphere, and if you whack them with a solar wind particle, they just fly off into space.
0: So first we need to break apart the water molecule, and this happens because it absorbs UV radiation from the sun, it photodissociates, and once you have free hydrogen floating around, it's extremely light and very likely to interact with the solar wind.
3: Now, I guess we've always looked to Venus and Mars as being terrestrial, somewhat Earth-like planets, to understand how our own planet fits in with other bodies in the universe. But I guess with the discovery of ever-increasing numbers of planets around other stars, what can this tell us about what we might find there?
0: So this model can be quite useful as we start to find a lot of rocky planets, terrestrial planets, and these are the ones we're interested in because we think they can host life. If we have this two different types of planet formation as presented in the model, we can start to differentiate these planets, these exoplanets that we're finding, based on their distance from their star. And that'll start to tell us, is this likely to be still cooling? Is it still in the magma phase and still has a very thick steam atmosphere, slowly losing water? Or is it further away and potentially retaining a lot of its water in the form of oceans?
3: My thanks to Tamla Maciel of the Kaplanis Laboratory in Cambridge. Now it's time to dip into Naked Astronomy's postbag and answer some of your questions. Ricardo Hernandez sent an email to astronomy at thenakedscientist.com wanting to know more about gravitational waves. He was wondering whether the vibrations of these waves might be strong enough to trigger earthquakes. To find out, I put this one to Kirsten Goschalk at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research in Perth.
5: So the short answer to this one is no, not really. If they were strong enough to cause an earthquake, then we would have detected them by now and, and it would be in the news and everyone would be really excited about it. But unfortunately, they're far too weak to have that kind of an effect on the Earth. So gravitational waves are like a big wave that propagates in space-time and they're predicted by Einstein in 1915 and they mostly theory until now but they transport energy as gravitational radiation as these waves and we haven't yet directly detected them. We have detected them indirectly. There was some observations of a system out in space that two astronomers did and they surmised the existence of gravitational waves and they won the Nobel Prize for physics from those observations in 1993 but we haven't actually directly detected them on Earth because it's extremely difficult because they are so weak. We predict that the strongest ones that would be reaching Earth would maybe be if you had a kilometre of the Earth, the gravitational wave coming in would only change the size of that kilometre by less than the size of a proton. So to measure the effect of these waves, you need to be looking at big, big things and, and measuring over big distances.
3: And what kind of astronomical objects are producing these gravitational waves?
5: So we have uh, systems that are orbiting around each other. So maybe you've got neutron stars going around each other or black holes and stars in orbit around each other. So you've got these two things that are spinning around a shared centre of gravity, a point in between them, and their interaction in their orbits produces gravitational waves.
3: So they're produced when very massive objects are moving around very quickly but how would we detect them?
5: So there's two main ways that we're trying at the moment from Earth. There's these things called laser interferometers that we've built, where you've got two lasers at right angles to each other. And when a gravitational wave comes in, one of the arms will be stretched longer and one of the arms will be shrunk. And so because they've got these two lasers, they interfere. And you can see a change in that interference pattern, even if just the distances of those arms are changed very minutely. Unfortunately, none of the detectors that we have, the laser interferometers that we have on the Earth have actually detected a gravitational wave yet, but they're planning on building even bigger ones so that they're even more sensitive to weaker waves, and hopefully we'll find some soon. And then there's the other way that we're trying, and radio astronomers are observing these things called pulsars, which are neutron stars that are spinning around very fast, and they emit extremely regular pulses of radio waves. And so they are the most accurate clocks in the universe. And so you have these pulsars out in space in the universe, and they're beaming their pulses of radio waves towards the Earth, and we can collect them with radio telescopes. And when a gravitational wave goes through space-time in between the pulsar and Earth, it will actually change the timings of those pulses. So you'll see one pulsar that's you know perfectly pulsing at us, and a gravitational wave will you know ripple past and the timings will be off a little bit. And so what you can do is observe pulsars in one direction and then observe pulsars in another direction, you know, maybe 90 degrees because you need to have them at right angles, not at the same um, line, not at 180 degrees. And so you observe all of these pulsars in different spots in the sky and you should see the timings lengthened in one direction and shortened in another direction. So it's kind of like the same way the laser interferometer works, except on a massive scale, almost as big as the galaxy, hopefully.
3: We've got these detected on Earth that could find gravitational waves, and we've got methods using pulsars. Are these teams in direct competition to get the first discovery of gravitational waves, or are they looking for fundamentally different kinds of gravitational wave?
5: I think they're they're pretty much in competition to find the first gravitational waves. And if you ask the people who are trying laser interferometers, they insist they're going to find them first. And you ask the people that are trying to use these pulsar timing arrays, and they're like, oh no, we've got a great chance. We're going to make this happen really soon. But neither of them have managed it yet. So we're just holding our breaths and waiting to see who gets there first. And then there's actually a third way they're going to maybe try. And it's basically laser interferometers except they're thinking of putting one in space so that it's not affected by things on earth so some of the laser interferometers if you have like a truck drive past even hundreds of kilometers away that can result in a false detection because they're so sensitive and almost anything that happens around them can actually have an effect so having it out in space removes a lot of those effects and you can get much more accurate readings
3: Thanks, Kirsten. Now, we've got an email here that's come in from François Lagrange. He understands that the solar system's planets circle around the sun because its gravity is always pulling them inward, keeping them in orbit around it. But, he wonders, if every body in the universe exerts a gravitational pull on every other body, as Newton says... He wonders why the gravitational pulls of massive planets like Jupiter don't disrupt the orbits of smaller and less massive planets like the Earth. I put this one to Dr. Rosh Church, who works on solar system dynamics at Volund Observatory in Sweden.
1: That's correct. Jupiter does exert a gravitational force on the Earth. But Jupiter is only about one thousandth of the mass of the Sun which is the most massive object in the solar system, and it's also several times further away. So the force on the Earth from Jupiter is much smaller than that from the Sun, and hence the dynamics of the Earth's orbit are really dominated by the force from the Sun. But
3: the solar system's been around for, what, five billion years. Presumably even quite a small pole would start to have a significant effect over these very long timescales.
1: Yes, that's correct. And in fact, what the forces from the other planets in the solar system, and that 's dominated by Jupiter as the most massive of the planet, does is it causes the orbits of the planets to vary on longer time scales and in a periodic way, so the eccentricities and inclinations of the orbits that 's how elliptical they are and how much they're out of the plane of Jupiter in the Sun's orbit, changes with time on timescales of tens of thousands of years. So while
3: we think of the orbits of the planets as being relatively constant over human timescales, over longer timescales those orbits are changing? That's right, yes. So Jupiter isn't massive enough to have a significant effect on short timescales. What about the stars around the Sun? They're obviously much closer in mass to the Sun.
1: And that's correct. But fortunately for us, they're also several million times further away. So the effects of the other stars on the solar system are negligible. However, if another star were to come closer to the solar system, it could very easily disrupt the orbits of the planets in the solar system. And in fact, we think we have evidence of this having happened in other planetary systems, planetary systems that we now see around other stars. And in particular, one thing we see are what are called hot Jupiters, and those are Jupiter-like planets but found closer to their stars than Mercury is to our Sun. And we think that these hot Jupiters can be produced when a planet-bearing star with planets rather like our solar system has a close encounter with a binary star system. That is where you have two stars orbiting one another. And the planet-bearing star can be exchanged into this binary. And then the force of the companion star, which is now rather close, perhaps only a few hundred times the distance of the Sun from the Earth, can cause very dramatic changes in the orbits of the planets, which can bring the orbit of one of them very close to its star.
3: So our nearest star, Proxima Centauri, is what, about four light years away? But it sounds like if that were to come closer to our own sun, that would be quite bad news for us.
1: It would indeed, but it's exceedingly unlikely to do so. And in fact, we know the motions of the stars around us rather well from the results from the Hipparcos satellite, which was a European satellites in the 1990s which measured the positions of stars extremely accurately. And by measuring the changes in the positions of stars over the timescales of years, you can actually, it turns out, measure their distances and velocities quite well. And hence, you can predict how they're going to move in the future. And there's no risk at any point in the immediate future of any of the stars around the sun coming too close to it.
3: My thanks to Dr. Ross Church from the Lund Observatory in Sweden. We've got time for one last question this month, and this is from one of our younger listeners. Twelve-year-old Anthony Knapp has got in touch from Missouri, and he's wondering whether there might be life on Neptune. Now, it's certainly a blue planet, and it's often called an ice giant because we think there's so much water ice beneath its surface. So I asked Kirsten Goschalk what she thought.
5: Well, no, not life as we know it, because while there's nothing ruling out exotic forms of life that we just can't understand, that, you know, doesn't need the things that we know life needs on Earth, we can't rule it out that that exists on Neptune. But life like on Earth probably couldn't exist there. Because Neptune is extremely cold and it's also got a lot of pressure on the, its surface. So it's cold, obviously, because it's so far away from the sun, so it doesn't get much sunlight at all. And it's also much bigger than the Earth. As we know, Neptune is one of the gas planets. It's very, very large. So that means that as you get deeper into those gaseous layers, you actually get a lot more pressure there. So humans certainly would have a very hard time surviving on Neptune. In fact, some scientists have been doing experiments and they've determined that it's quite possible there's oceans of liquid diamond on Neptune because the pressure is so high and the temperatures get so high as you get higher and higher pressure, that there might be molten diamond oceans, which would be an amazing sight to see, but not necessarily the best place to harbour life.
3: Why is that pressure so high on Neptune?
5: Because it's such a massive planet. It's got so much stuff and so much weight, and that weight all has a lot of gravity that pulls it in all together. And as you go through those layers of gas, the gravity gets stronger and stronger and pulls things together, tighter and tighter, so you have this massive pressure.
3: So I know some of these gassy planets do have rocky moons. Could they be a more promising place for life?
5: They sure could. In fact, we think there's A pretty good chance there might be some kind of microbial, tiny little life somewhere else in the solar system. Maybe around Jupiter, Europa, a moon around Jupiter that's mostly ice. We believe that there is a liquid ocean under that ice that's interacting with the rocky core of the moon. It might have some life there. There's also some moons around Saturn that might have liquid water on them and therefore might have some life. And there's also Triton around Neptune. So coming back to whether Neptune could support life, um, the moon Triton around Around Neptune has ice and rock and it might have liquid water so there might be some microbial life there so if we we're hoping to send I say we uh, I think NASA's planning a mission to Europa to have a bit of a dig around and see if we can find anything there and see what is actually under the ice but obviously that's many years in the future because not only does it take a while to plan these things it obviously takes a while to get out to Jupiter and Saturn and Uranus and Neptune to even investigate.
3: In the past I guess astronomers have had this concept of the habitable zone, this area around a sun-like star where habitable planets could be and it always rather looked like it was the orbit of the Earth because Mars was thought too far away and Venus thought too close to the sun. It seems astronomers are now thinking about much more diverse environments as being potential habitats for life.
5: Definitely. So the reasoning behind the habitable zone that was pretty much where the Earth is was because we had to be close enough to the star, to our sun, but other planets obviously around their stars, to have liquid water. So getting enough energy and and heat and light from the sun for ice to melt and us to have liquid water and also be a big enough planet to have an atmosphere to protect that water and have a, a biosphere or something like that. But there are other ways that something can be heated. So you look at some of the moons around Jupiter and Saturn, and they're what we call tidally heated. So the interaction between the large giant gas planet and the moon means that it flexes and changes as it goes round, and this actually happens to the earth with our moon as well we have the tides with the water as everyone well knows if they go to the beach they see high tide and low tide but our earth also deforms up to about 40 centimeters with the moon going around it and so that happens in far more extreme ways when you've got such a big planet and these moons like europa and they get stretched and deformed a little bit and that causes this thing called tidal heating. So you, d- you can be quite far away from the sun and still be warm enough to have liquid water. So the idea of this habitable zone being defined as just when you're close enough to the star to have enough heat is kind of being thrown out because there are lots of different other ways we can become warm enough to have liquid water.
3: My thanks to Kirsten Goschalk who's based at ICRA in Western Australia. That's all we've got time for this month. Next time, I'll be taking a trip to the seaside to team up with the Royal Astronomical Society and bring you a special edition of Nake Astronomy from the UK's National Astronomy Meeting in St Andrews in Scotland. If you can't wait that long and would like to keep up with the latest news from the conference as it happens, you'll be able to pick up Daily Digest podcasts from the 2nd to the 6th of July, and which will be available for download from The Naked Scientist's special Podcasts feed at thenakedscientist.com slash specials. And, of course, in the meantime, if you've got a question you would like us to answer, you can get in touch by sending an email to astronomy at scientists.com. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Dominic Ford, and comes to you from Cambridge University, with support from the Science and Technology Facilities Council.